folks, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we are glad to have Atlas Society Senior Scholar Stephen Hicks discussing Derek Bell, the quote, godfather of critical race theory. Uh, after his opening comments, we'll open it up to questions. So if you have a question, raise your hand and we'll get to uh, as many of you as possible. Uh, Stephen, intriguing topic. Uh, what about Derek Bell and his role in CRT? Hi, Scott. Hi, Lawrence, everyone. Uh, yeah, thanks for uh, for joining and setting this up. Yes, uh, I started getting interested in this topic again. Uh, I was going back to some of my grad school work in, in epistemology and uh, some of the work on postmodernism, critical legal theory, critical race theory back in the 90s and early 2000s. Because of the uh, recent uptick in uh, not only just kind of intellectual interest, but activism coming out of uh, the critical race theory. Uh, so it was an academic theory one generation ago, but it has become an activist movement and uh, uh, in some cases even uh, weaponized in, uh, in, in, uh, in social activism. So the idea is that uh, even if we are not up on the theory and we haven't read the, uh, the, the professors and the intellectuals, when we are looking at the journalism and what's going on with respect to race relations, in the last five, seven, ten years, there's been a noticeable turn uh, toward a much more cynical understanding of race relations, uh, a much more adversarial uh, uh, understanding of race relations and activism uh, that's not uh, kind of aimed at uh, peaceful amelioration and progress and so forth, and in uh, uh, an increasing number of cases, even more uh, racial violence. So I uh, uh, was noticing not only that journalistically, but also that the, uh, the people who were the intellectuals formulating this movement and f formulating a strategy for this movement were once more in the news. They were the ones the uh, the street activists in some cases were citing, but certainly when we were having the more uh, intellectual arguments on social media and in the academic journals, uh, these names were returning again from the, uh, the, the 90s. Now, uh, the critical race theory part, there is the critical part, so there is an explicit connection to critical theory. And that takes us back to uh, uh, people like Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno and, uh, and uh, Herbert Marcuse. And those figures, 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, are explicitly acknowledged uh, by the 1990s founders of the movement called critical race theory. And they will tell us that they chose the name critical race theory, just taking critical theory by which they meant Frankfurt School critical theory, and then just adding the race uh, uh, modifier, saying that they were taking those abstract theories and applying them to to uh, racial issues. And uh, many of them, the initial founders were law professors, but philosophical law professors. Derek Bell is in the mix here. And then uh, what you see is them formulating an explicit movement within legal uh, philosophy and law schools and the law journals in the 90s. And then there are uh, educational handbooks uh, that are that are written meant to be uh, for 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 teachers and professors who are teaching these in the early 2000s. And then by the time we get into the 2010s, uh, uh, the movement has grown and institutionalized itself enough that we start to be aware of it in uh, street activism and uh, at that level as well. Now, uh, uh, I'm going to talk for maybe just 10 or 15 minutes, and I want to just do a little bit of uh, a partly historical background, but then some of the key quotations from Derek Bell, whom Kimberly Crenshaw and Delgado, uh, uh, they are the ones who are more intellectually active in the late 90s, early 2000s, but they all will cite Derek Bell as having worked in the trenches on these issues in the 1980s and on into the 1990s. And that's why they uh, they call him the uh, the father of critical race theory or the something the, uh, the the godfather, which has, of course, more of a more of a charge to it. But the idea here core is that when we think about the uh, the theory of race relations, so there are different 
races, the, the theory goes, we have the arguments about whether race is only social or whether there's a biological component to it. Uh, but whatever that is, when we turn to normative issues and how should people of different races or different ethnicities or different right, whatever's relate to each other, uh, what we find starting in the 1960s, 70s and 80s, particularly in the American context, is that there are two schools of thought and two schools of activism that are developed. And for short form, I'm going to call the first one. The, uh, the MLK Jr. form or the Martin Luther King Jr. form of race relations. And this is uh, a, a, a kind of a long honored tradition in race relations in the United States. You know, it goes way back to uh, the 1700s on through the 1800s in figures like Frederick Douglass and so on through the early, early 20th century. But the idea here is philosophically that we need to treat people as individuals, and as individuals, people are self-responsible agents forming their own character. They should be free and equal, particularly in an idealistic nation like the United States. And yes, the United States has a compromise on achieving liberty and equality for all, but nonetheless, it is progressive, and over the generations, we have made progress in eliminating legal double standards, eliminating double social standards, teaching people to, uh, to, uh, to treat each other as individuals, and even if you have some racial attitudes, at least to tolerate, uh, uh, but even better than tolerate, to get past those racial attitudes and just... Uh, see that people should be judged, in Martin Luther King's words, on the content of their character and then by extension also by the actions that they engage in. And if we do this and we continue to do this, we will continue to make progress. And it's something that should happen uh, uh, over the course of the next generation or two, building on the progress that we have made. Now, that's the standard uh, or one of the standard kind of liberal individualist enlightenment approaches to race relations that's pitched at a very high level of abstraction there's dozens of dozens of sub debates that people have had about race relations within that broad philosophical approach but something significant starts to happen in the 1960s 70s and 80s that generation that leads to a fundamental rejection of the MLK approach to uh, to the civil rights and its replacement, uh, or, or at least the 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 rising of a competitor movement that is attracting a significant number of uh, younger scholars and activists in race relations who are explicitly rejecting the MLK. K approach. Now, partly there is an intellectual philosophical story that does go back to critical theory and has some postmodern elements as well. We'll come back to that uh, in, in a couple of minutes. But I want to suggest also that at a slightly less intellectual level, some of the events in social history and political history in the United States also fed into this movement. So I want to suggest, for example, that in 1968, when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, that that was a huge uh, event, uh, uh, not only that uh, this movement lost its leader, uh, and someone who is revered by uh, people committed to improving race relations in the United States, but that it was also interpreted by uh, younger scholars who are a little bit more cynical, perhaps already a little more impatient as uh, symbolic of the death, not only of this particular individual, Martin Luther King, but of his entire approach. But the idea was that, yeah, uh, we've pretended to that we're interested in solving these race issues and uh, that we're going to give black people equal rights and equal liberties and so forth. But really, when they get to uppity, what we're going to do is just kill them. And the killing of Martin Luther King, uh, independently of who actually was a, was responsible for it, was then seen symbolically by many as the death, uh, not only of that individual, but of that entire 
approach to civil rights, entire approach to race relations, and the philosophy that that uh, that uh, uh, it embodied. And that's in the late 1960s. In the 1970s, I want to suggest that there was a, an important Supreme Court case, the Baki versus University of California at Davis. And it was uh, one of the first major uh, test cases for affirmative action, but one that because uh, many of the affirmative action programs have been more systematic experimenting in, with them in the 1960s on into the 1970s, and then test cases started to work their way through the courts. And the Baki case decided by the United States Supreme Court in the middle part of the 1970s was again seen by members of the uh, increasingly anti-traditional uh, civil rights movement as a, uh, a, a sign that race relations were not uh, seriously on the agenda for the United States. So this was the position that says, okay, we can have our debates about affirmative action and so forth, uh, and, you know, given the terrible history of slavery and the legacy of Jim Crow and so forth, uh, even if we are, uh, um, so we can have the debate about whether affirmative action is just reverse discrimination or whether we need just a little bit of it for the next generation to kind of fight fire with fire and break the stranglehold of the last elements of racism in our society and so forth. But the idea here was that uh, the United States Supreme Court decided largely against affirmative action as most of the experiments had been practiced. There was a kind of quota system in place for the medical school at the University of California at Davis, and it was found to be in violation of the 14th Amendment. And the 14th Amendment was uh, to guarantee in a sense, uh, uh, no racial discrimination or at least equal uh, equal representation under the laws and no double standards. And since the University of California at Davis was a, uh, a government school, a state funded school, it was held that it can it was violating the 14th Amendment in the way that it was taking race into account, that it was discriminating against uh, racial minor majorities and race, uh, discriminating in favor of racial minorities, and that was wrong. So the idea was that uh, uh, by appealing to this very abstract general constitutional principle, the 14th Amendment, uh, this uh, affirmative action that many people in the civil rights movement thought was uh, a, a temporary but necessary tool to solve the continuing problems of racism in our society. That again, this more cynical approach said, this just shows that white people and the people who are really controlling the courts and controlling the legislature in this country, if our group gets too uppity in their words, we're just going to smack them down and take away these rather benign affirmative action programs and not allow blacks to uh, blacks to advance. So, uh, and then that was reaffirmed in another another series of decisions in the 1980s. And I want to suggest also that in the early 1990s, the appointment of Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court of the United States was by this same group seen as uh, again an affirmation that their understanding of uh, the proper approach or the best approach to race relations was not going to go forward. So Thurgood Marshall had retired, and he was kind of a, a left-leaning, uh, 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 quote-unquote, progressive, strongly endorsing uh, uh, affirmative action programs for racial minorities, and uh, 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 kind of to the to the left end of the Democratic Party policy programs and affirming those by and large. But he was replaced by Clarence Thomas, who was, again, by this group seen as a far right conservative, uh, 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 kind of the opposite political and legal philosophy of Thurgood Marshall. And the fact that he was a black man who was appointed to this court was then seen as a slap in the face. Uh, to uh, to their hopes and their aspirations, and from their perspective, perspective, I, I won't use the language that they use, but he's seen as the token black man who's just going to basically rubber stamp what the white man wants him to rubber stamp. 
So the point here is that among the activists and the intellectuals who are somewhat jaded and cynical about the state of race relations, no matter how intellectual they are and professorial and academic they are, these events, the death of Martin Luther King, the so the, 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 the repeated failures of affirmative action programs in the courts, including the Supreme Court decision and the appointment of Clarence Thomas, that by the time we get to the early 1990s, they are angry. They are ready to give up on the whole idea that the more traditional approach to civil rights is uh, is is uh, is is not only not feasible or is feasible rather, but it, even that it was well meant and intended. And so they are going to argue that something more serious, more fundamental, and uh, radical is going to be necessary uh, if uh, uh, we're going to uh, you know salvage something or other for the state of race relations, particularly for the state of race relations from the perspective of the racial minorities. And so Derek Bell, who is a professor of law and a philosophical professor of law, uh, uh, is the man who then writes the article that becomes the foundational piece for uh, this new approach to, to, uh, to, uh, to race relations. Now, he does not call it critical race theory. Instead, his label for the new movement is racial realism. Uh, and it's going to be just a few years after this that Richard Delgado and Kimberly Crenshaw will partly drawing on his work, uh, but integrate his work with critical theory and, and, and the, the label critical race theory then is born. But here are some uh, important uh, uh, quotations I want to lay out for you from Derek Bell, just to give you the sense of, of, his, his, uh, of, of his approach. So what he does is this is uh, published in a, uh, a law review, the University of Connecticut Law Review. And, uh, and I'll just give you some direct quotes from it. What he argues up front is that uh, while traditional uh, race relations aspirations in the United States are striving for equality and liberty, he says forthrightly, quote, racial equality is, in fact, not a realistic goal, unquote. And so what he's going to argue is that we should, we now speaking for black Americans, abandon the idea that equality is not only a realistic standard, but even a, an idealistic standard that people are actually striving for. That's not the reality of racial uh, situation in the United States. So we're going to abandon the fight for racial equality. A little bit later, he will argue uh, that the Martin Luther King approach explicitly needs to be uh, abandoned. And he calls it the, we have a dream mentality uh, of the 1960s. And of course there he's uh, hearkening back to uh, uh, Martin Luther King's famous speech, you know, I have a dream that people will be judged by the content of their characters. This is now just seen as a mentality of the 1960s that needs to be abandoned entirely. Uh, and then he's going to argue that uh, he's going to lay out some legal principles and legal philosophical principles as well. Then he goes on to argue that, quote, liberal civil rights theory uh, uh, can be critiqued and should be critiqued and rejected. So and that's a direct quote. Again, the, the entire liberal worldview, uh, by which he means the legacy of the Enlightenment, as it comes down to Martin Luther King, the civil rights theory in particular that has developed, that is our target. We are rejecting that and setting it aside. And he goes on to argue, and this is where the more cynical uh, and jaded part becomes more explicit. He wants to argue that every element of liberal civil rights theory, including the idea of evidence, the idea of precedence, that there are these universal rights, that uh, lawyers and judges and juries should strive to be objective. You think of all of those as philosophical principles coming out of the Enlightenment, that all of those are just formal 
words, just abstract words into which people in the legal profession can pour whatever subjective value preferences they have and reach whatever legal conclusions they want. But going on to argue that since whites are in the majority and they have the power and they're not really interested in improving racial relations, they just use all of those noble sounding words as covers for what they really want to do, which is mainly to keep blacks subordinate and to use the power of the state to prop up their own special status in American society. So here's another direct quotation here. Precedence, rights theory, and objectivity are merely formal rules that serve a covert purpose. And so the important word there is the word covert. They, they are just covers for a darker, more cynical power agenda. Now, uh, between all of that is, then is, this, is, uh, is uh, Derek Bell stepping in as a, uh, a law professor, but he is very well read in the philosophy of law, in the epistemology of law, and you will see him uh, uh, in this article making explicit attacks on all of the elements of Enlightenment theory. So the idea, for example, uh, coming out of the Enlightenment, that there are such things as universal principles that apply to all human beings. He will argue that uh, uh, coming out of uh, kind of legal pragmatism, so the philosophy of pragmatism, uh, 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 and, and some related schools, some of the more skeptical schools, that there are no such things as universal principles, uh, that all we have are particular uh, principles or rules of thumb that different groups for different purposes adopt. And so the idea that there are such universal principles are, are, are just, uh, just a myth, an enlightenment myth that needs to be set aside. The idea that some of these principles are absolutes and that they should hold for all times and all places, uh, that also, uh, Derek Bell goes on to argue, is another enlightenment myth that epistemology and metaphysics have disproved, again, appealing to the progressives and some of the pragmatic philosophers behind them. Every generation is different. The social conditions change. So what rules and principles are necessary and workable in one generation for this group are different from the ones from different generations and so forth. And so any you know, kind of principles that we have inherited from previous generations, we should uh, have a somewhat skeptical eye toward them and just see them as an attempt on the part of that previous generation to reify you know, their particular tools for solving their particular problems into these timeless absolutes, which really, which really they aren't. Uh, the idea of objectivity uh, and, and uh, that we can come up, uh, that, that we can, in fact, be objective, that we can uh, not let our subjective emotions or our subjective biases, that we can look at the evidence, uh, um, that we can uh, uh, use logic in, a, in, a, in an objective fashion to structure the evidence to reach uh, a true conclusion. The argument here is uh, by Derek Bell explicitly that again, the history of philosophy since the Enlightenment, again, drawing on the pragmatists and some other skeptics is that objectivity in fact is a, a myth. So here's a quotation here again, directly from, from, uh, from Derek Bell, quote, judges, settle cases not by deductive reasoning, but rather by reliance on value-laden personal beliefs, unquote. So any, uh, and any, any uh, uh, principles, these abstract formal principles are, are kind of empty vessels into which people simply pour their subjective value premises. And this is what judges do, is what juries do, uh, and, and so forth. And then there's an explicit then uh, uh, discussion of uh, moral principles, uh, that moral principles, there's a, uh, the argument is that uh, philosophy has shown there's no connection between facts and values. Uh, so even if we could be objective about facts, 
uh, uh, and logical about what the facts say. Nonetheless, where we get our values from and, and our morals from is entirely independent of that. Those are entirely subjective. And so since the law is a normative discipline, what lawyers and juries and judges do is just rely upon their subjective moral values. So here's another direct quote. All moral values are wholly relative and determined by one's particular environment, unquote. So we add a kind of social or environmental determinism to the mix as well. So it's not only that everything is subjective in this domain, but different groups in different circumstances are conditioned by their environments to have different values. And so the whole legal realm simply is these contending, relativized, subjective value frameworks. So the argument is from Derek Bell then that the entire enlightenment epistemology and metaphysics needs to be set aside. Uh, the civil rights theory that's individualistic based on the notion of individual rights, that character and self-responsibility uh, matter, uh, and that, uh, that that kind of progressive optimistic notion that we can solve all of these uh, uh, traditional atavistic uh, social pathologies over time, all of that is to be rejected. That idealism needs to be replaced by racial realism. Uh, uh, that's not ever going to be about liberty and equality, so we have to abandon that as a goal. The courts and the uh, uh, and the legal system, and by, broad, by by extension, all of society is simply a contending or a contestation uh, 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 field in which different groups have their own agendas and they are fighting against each other for supremacy. It's strong versus weak. And just unfortunately, from the perspective of blacks, they are a small minority in an overwhelming white group that has all of the levers of power at their disposal, and they are never going to be able to get out of the uh, the uh, the subordinate circumstance. So uh, just a couple more minutes before I turn it over to general discussion. Toward the end of this uh, this foundational piece by by Derek Bell, he uh, lays out an, an, an anecdote. He says, you know, because all of this sounds very you know skeptical and relativistic and and cynical. Uh, and what's the what's the point of doing anything then? So what Bell wants to argue is that uh, we should give up, uh, we being blacks and those who are, are, are sympathetic to their cause, to the traditional civil rights agenda. But uh, it doesn't mean that we should just kind of lay down and die. So what he argues, or, or, or just give up and, and, and give, fall into insignificance, he does argue that blacks should fight, and they should fight for something, even though it is a hopeless fight in terms of any real prospects for uh, improving the condition of blacks. So he makes an argument that by not giving up, by fighting, you can preserve some shred of your humanity, you know, that uh, you will you will go down fighting. But uh, uh, what you have to realize is that uh, uh, it has to be a fight against the racial minority, a uh, majority rather, a no quarters given fight against them and whatever tools are at your disposal just let them know that you are not going along with the program whatever their program is that you are uh, trying to subvert the current society because you see it as completely unjust toward your group and so it gives this uh, anecdote of uh, uh, when he was a younger uh, lawyer uh, uh, he was at some march and met a woman named Mrs. B Biona McDonald, who uh, was participating in these marches. And he was asking why she was this you know, little old lady at this point, uh, why she was still going to these marches, even though it seems like everything was pointless. And she agreed with him, saying, no, this is com completely pointless from the, from the perspective of actually changing society. But instead, what she said is, I am still a human being fighting for myself, and I get a lot of pleasure, and this is a direct quotation from her, from harassing white folks, unquote. So the goal here is to see the other as the enemy, and with whatever weapons you have at your disposal to harass them. 
And some people will have small weapons and some people will have bigger weapons, but continue to harass the enemy, the racial enemy, and that will make you feel good and give you something to look forward to on, on the next day. So what Derek Bell concludes his, uh, his foundational piece by arguing is to say that this anecdote that he learned from Mrs. McDonald, that's what uh, we law professors should be doing, what we racial activists should be doing, is see this as a no-holds-barred fight against the racial oppressor who's always going to oppress us, but we are trying to subvert with any weapon we had, have, including the weapon of law, the weapon of protest, and the, any other social activism weapons we have, and that's the racial realism program he adopts. That's what then gets folded into uh, the critical race theory as formulated by Kimberley Crenshaw. So it's the Derek Bell uh, approach that I've just outlined here, combined with uh, critical theory coming from the Frankfurt School founders. And my historical analysis then is that this intellectual framework that's developed in the 1990s, that's the one that then becomes increasingly popular among uh, law professors and then gets uh, uh, extended to other academic departments inside of universities. And then it becomes as uh, the next generation of intellectuals, lawyers and activists are trained, the one that bursts out by the time we get to the middle part of the 2010s and into the early 2020s. And that's the critical race theory that we are uh, we are dealing with now in our time. All right, so those are my prepared remarks. So why don't I uh, kick it back to you, Scott, and we'll open things up for discussion. Great, and I want to encourage people, if you have questions, to request to speak. JP will get to you in just one moment. Um, I, you know, I was struck by what you said about objectivity, and you know, we're starting to see major newspapers even talk about, you know, that objectivity isn't the standard anymore. Is is it fair to say that's at least somewhat inspired by him? I, I would say that's a parallel development. So the uh, the abandonment of objectivity, since that's a philosophical principle, it's quite universal. And then you will see, uh, and that, that goes back to earlier philosophy in the 20th century. So then you will see some philosophers of science like Thomas Kuhn and Paul Feyerabend applying that to science. Uh, you will see people applying it to feminist theory. And so some of the anti-objectivist feminisms that emerge in the latter part of the 20th century. You'll see it also then applied to historiography. Uh, and so the abandonment of objective standards in the writing of history. Uh, and then, uh, as you're suggesting, Scott, the same thing starts to happen in the journal journalism schools. Uh, you know, traditional journalism uh, had said there is a place for objectivity, and uh, you know, lots of working at what that means in a journalistic context. But it's also being uh, increasingly abandoned in the 80s and 90s as well. But I think it's an independent. Uh, um, fork in the road that is followed. There are lots of uh, less objective people. Um, <laughs> the, uh, JP, thanks for joining. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Lawrence. And thank you, uh, Dr. Higgs. I I had more questions, but you answered some of them in your last uh, remarks there. Um, but uh, I, can you can you dis, um, discern the difference between between critical theory and postmodernism, and can you go as far as calling them virtually interchangeable? Thanks. Yeah, I would not go that far. I I see uh, the two of them as siblings. Uh, and perhaps as um, uh, what would be the right family biology metaphor, uh, like half half siblings. So you know, same mother, but different fathers or, or same father, but different mothers. So there are certainly some strong similarities. And I think mostly in the value realm, 
I would say, yes, they are identical, that they are uh, both uh, relativistic with respect to moral values and adversarial, dividing people into groups. Uh, so there's a, there's a collectivism that is in common between the two. And then seeing those groups as relativized and in uh, kind of fundamental contestation with each other and a contestation that cannot be bridged different worldviews, different value frameworks, and so that everything ultimately is a power struggle. And uh, so that's the part that I think they share in common. And one can say at least one of the uh, ancestors is going to be going back to Marxism because critical thinking or critical theory, rather, Horkheimer, Adorno, Marcuse, they are all Marxists in their youth before uh, formulating uh, uh, kind of this neo-Marxism and much of critical theory is a neo, one of the various neo-Marxisms that gets developed in the early part of the 20th century. Now, where I think though there are some important differences are on the metaphysical and the epistemological side because the critical theorists for however much they uh, will drink from some skeptical wells and from some pragmatic wells, they nonetheless still are realists in that they think that society is real and that what they are doing is real social science, that they're figuring out the way society actually works. And we learn some from Marxist social science, and perhaps we add some Freudian uh, uh, psychoanalysis to the mix, and we learn from various other structuralist and deterministic sociological theories. But what we're trying to do is come up with the true theory that explains how the levers of power actually work in society. Now, they will have then a very jaded, cynical, adversarial theory that they develop, but nonetheless, they think that it is true at some level and, and, and as a realistic description of the way society works. And that, I think, is the fundamental difference with the postmoderns because the postmoderns are fundamentally skeptical about any theory that claims to be a big picture story of the way society really works. So the postmoderns will never say, uh, or at least they will never say consistently, or if you push them on it, that we are offering a true theory, or that we have knowledge of the way society actually works. They really do uh, 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 take the skepticism all the way down and relativize and subjectivize everything all the way down. So they will just be left with saying, uh, you know, at most what we can do is describe what seem to be the contending power structures in this generation and the way things seem to be working after the fact, but we're never going to try to generalize that to a theory of society as a whole. And we're never going to then say uh, that we can take our general theory about the way things work and make predictions about where things are going to happen uh, in the future. So all of that realist uh, uh, metaphysics and all of that uh, kind of quasi-social scientific epistemology, the postmoderns are rejecting. So how does that sound, JP? I think he liked it. <laughs> yeah, it was crystal. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Great. Uh, well, uh, Atlas Society founder David Kelly has joined us. David, thank you for joining. You'll have to unmute yourself to uh, talk. It's... I don't know if you see it there in the bottom left. But uh, while he is um, doing that, we've um, we've got someone else that has uh, requested to speak. Lawrence, I apologize. I'm having uh, I don't know if you can bring him up to the stage. Um, let me ask, what's the relation between critical legal theory and CRT? One just evolved out of the other. Yeah, uh, well, I would say there's a there's a Venn diagram uh, at work here. 
So critical theory would be the uh, the biggest circle, and that would be the most general set of principles. <laughs> I'm getting a lot of uh, feedback noise. I'm sorry. Uh, so critical theory is the the uh, the general set of principles, but then you can take those set of principles and apply them to different domains. So you could say, I'm going to take critical theory and apply it to science, or I'm going to take critical theory and apply it to art, or I'm going to apply it to politics, or I'm going to apply it to law. And so all of those domains would be applications of critical theory in general. Now, another way, though, of taking critical theory is uh, to take it and apply it to social groupings. So you could say, I'm going to take critical theory and apply it to racial groupings, or I'm going to take critical theory and apply it to sex and gender groupings, or critical theory and apply it to religious groupings. And then you would have critical feminist theory, critical race theory, critical religious theory, and so on. So uh what we then would have is an overlap suppose you are interested in critical race theory and so you want uh, to apply critical theory to race relations and you want to do your sociology and anthropology and political studies of what's going on with respect to races but then independently or in parallel of that you have uh, applied critical theory to the law and you have a theory about evidence and precedent and uh, the administration of, of courts and, and the adversarial system uh, and, and, and constitutional principles and so on. So then you've got a critical legal theory and you've got a critical race theory. And so then you would just marry those two. And then uh, I suppose if you did that, you would have critical legal race theory or something like that. So uh, I see Derek Bell as someone who is doing both of those. He does critical uh, race theory, even though he doesn't call it that. And he does critical legal theory, even though he doesn't call it that. But in principle, the critical race theory uh, that he develops could be, and he applies it to black people, could be applied to Latinos and it could be applied to uh, Asian minorities and so forth. So just see it as a series of uh, overlapping Venn, di uh, Venn, Venn diagram circles. Thank you for that. David? Um, hi, thanks. I'm, uh, can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, great. Uh, Stephen, uh, the first, my first question is um, an old standby that you're more than um, familiar with. Uh, if Derek Bell is criticizing and attacking objectivity as a myth, um, how does he come out saying certain things are true? <clears throat> and um, and even in the case of postmoderns, that where you say that they are different, they differ from critical race theory in or from Derek Bell anyway, and holding that being truly consistent um, in their non-objectivity. What I took from your book, uh, Explaining Postmodernism, is that they had a fundamental commitment to left-wing politics. And that's why they wanted to undermine objectivity, because the objective facts show that socialism has failed utterly. Um, so I wonder if you could comment on that. And um, Yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's a good question and a deep question. and. I mean, the philosopher in me wants to say there, you know, there is no way to square that circle. I mean, if you attack objectivity, then as part and parcel of that, you're going to end up not being able to use any of the other success concepts in epistemology. You know, truth, uh, uh, um, um, uh, high probability, right, or anything. Uh, it just uh, it becomes the, the universal dis, uh, solvent that just dissolves everything. So then you notice that these people who are smart are mounting these attacks on objectivity in one paragraph. But then nonetheless, they are making claims uh, and all kinds of positive claims in later paragraphs. You know, they'll say such and such is true or this is a fact or it follows that logically. 
So uh, then if we are paying attention, uh, then we, we notice, wait a second, uh, you said there are no facts uh, two paragraphs ago, but now you're relying on this as a faction. You said logic is out, but and you're you're mounting a lot. You're saying that this is a logical inference, and so on. So I, I think when that's pointed out to them, they have various strategies. I think the most cynical strategy is they will say, in philosophy mode, I will be anti-objectivist, and uh, I will use my anti-objectivity to undercut anything that you say that might be critical of me and that if you point out that i am being inconsistent well then i will just say haha okay you got me but uh, i'll just run away and just shift the the battle to some other some other issue uh and but i'm going to rely on being able to do that because most people aren't going to notice and so i will be able to get away with it rather rather a lot a less cynical uh, um, strategy, I think, is for them to fall back to a kind of pragmatism where they will say, yes, I'm critiquing objectivity, but uh, really what I mean when I'm critiquing objectivity is these highbrow versions of objectivity that say we can reach truth with a capital T and we can come up with these big sweeping theories that explain huge domains or that I can uh, 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 you know, say that my, my theory has a high degree of certainty. Uh, and really, that's just the version of objectivity that I am critiquing. And so if you point out that I seem to be inconsistent, then I will just retreat to saying, well, uh, this thing that I'm calling a fact, uh, it's just a, it's a low grade fact. It's a, it's a particular fact and I'm not then going to claim it for certainty. I'm just going to claim it as, as a probability, or I'm just going to rely on it for, for the here and the now. And so they will operationalize, uh, uh, the positive things like facts and logic and so forth, but only in the service of low-grade, small-level facts for particular tactical purposes. And I think that's the most, uh, I don't know if I want to use the word honest here, but the most honest kind of response that will come out from, uh, from, from pointing out the contradiction as, as you did. Now, I didn't pick up on the, or follow up on the, the second part of your question about the the uh, the commitment to a kind of ideology, say you know a strong left wing ideology that's been refuted in theory and practice, and so postmodernism and some critical theories as a defense mechanism in response to that. We can follow up on uh, more on that uh, if you want, but uh, that's just a response on the first half of your your big question, David. I believe he stepped away from the stage. Wow. Okay. But we've got gender critic. Uh, welcome. Do you have a question for Stephen? Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Th thank you. Um, so thank you for that that presentation. That was brilliant. Um, I really thank enjoyed you. that. Um, I've actually got a number of questions. Um, so I am a black gay man. Um, who is born British, uh, part of the uh, diaspora uh, from Nigeria. Um, I suppose my, so first generation um, immigrant, I suppose my, my first question is, it, it seems within the last five or seven years that the, the tactics, either the tactics of um, the far left or, you know, what, what I would call sort of the woke, um, ruthless um, CRT left has become that much more ruthless. Um, is that true or is it more the case that actually um, the, the, the actual, I suppose, the, the tactics have become more widespread, so we've become better at spotting um, the, the, the deployment of the tactics. 
I, uh, yeah, I think that's perceptive. I think both parts of that are true. Um, you mentioned five to seven years. I first noticed the uptick starting around 2015. So that would make it eight years or so. Um, uh, but yes, I think it has been much more widespread and to use your word ruthless. I think so. Um, now, I think there's also empirical evidence for this. Uh, there is a data scientist named David Rosado, R-O-Z-A-D-O. I, I recommend uh, people Google him. And what he does is uh, uses machine intelligence uh, uh, in uh, with, with respect to word count and semantics. And they take uh, the entire database of uh, the New York Times and Washington Post and leading newspapers around the United States. And they will then do a, a, a word count, how many times a particular word uh, is used by the New York Times in a given year. And, uh, uh, and then they'll apply some semantic uh, 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 algorithms as well. So they can tell something about the context. And so issues of uh, you know, race, racism, and all of the cognates there and anti-racism and critical race theory. So you run those through the, uh, through the, through the program and you graph these things from 1990, 2000, 2010, 2020 each year. And there's a huge, uh, uh, upswing, uh, in starting around 2014, 2015, 2016, depending on which particular word you look at. So, I think uh, not only my or our general sense from consuming media that, yes, there has been this increase in nasty and ruthless deployment of certain words and certain strategies, but that it also is is documented. And I think also the, the second thing that you mentioned is, is also true, that uh, people are now more aware of it, partly because more people are on, on social media and paying attention to these things. But I think we also are getting up the learning curve in being uh, sensitive to uh, you know, certain words when they are used explicitly, but then there's always the development of code words uh, and, and the new slang that comes along. So we are picking up on, on it and uh, just just being alert, but then also developing uh, counter strategies when when those things. So I think it's a it's a very rapid uh, development uh, that uh, kind of development and counter development that's been occurring in the last five to eight years or so. Can I ask the same question? Uh, one quick follow up. Yes. Okay, I'm not sure how quick the, um, but 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 essentially, how international do you feel CRT is? Because certainly these delta in Britain, um, and it you know, it's resulted in statue uh, removal, um, and there are areas where it's just ridiculous because actually yes absolutely the statistics on academics don't, don't really align but also i think africa and the african diaspora i think have been embarrassing um you know uh, uh, african americans haven't they because you know that they come across with a completely different attitude um mm. to, to america and i'm just if you can just talk a bit about sort of the international dimension that would be great thank you Yes, um, uh, that's fascinating. And uh, I've got some uh, personal data and some uh, kind of more formal data about studying how this phenomenon has, has, uh, has grown. And it very clearly is an American higher education product that was developed, at least in, in the CRT form. The, the earlier philosophical roots are European imported into the United States. That's the postmodernism and, uh, and the critical theory. But critical race theory in particular is an American product of the 1990s and early 2000s. And then there is a kind of reverse colonialism that goes on. 
uh, given the stature of American academics on the world stage. So all of the English-speaking world then adopts critical theory. Well, that's, that's an overstatement, but all of the uh, academic disciplines and departments that you would expect to be uh, uh, <laughs> sympathetic to and willing to adopt CRT do so. First, uh, Canada, my home and native land, you start seeing it there. Also in Britain, in Australia, in New Zealand. So the entire uh, higher education establishment, again, overstatement by higher education establishment, I mean those departments where you would expect uh, people to be adopting these views. So yes, it spreads to Britain, it spreads to Canada, spreads to New Zealand and Australia. Um, to a lesser extent, it spreads then to some of the former British colonies uh, 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 like India, uh, so it jumps the uh, kind of the, the racial divide from to countries where whites are not the racial majority, uh, and also to uh, sort of see some outposts in South Africa, for example. Now, um, I then will say that I have noticed in my travels, I was visiting professor in Eastern Europe, not Western Europe on a few occasions and each time i've been in eastern europe i've noticed that there's been much less sympathy among academics for any sort of postmodernism or critical theory and i have noticed a similar thing when i have traveled in uh, and done visiting at universities in in much of latin america although the dynamics are quite different there that uh, in, in Latin America, uh, there's more sympathy toward postmodernism, but not so much toward critical theory. There is a bit of a differentiation there. And there's more traditional Marxism and kind of metaphysically and epistemologically realist left thinking dominant in, uh, in Latin America. So it has not um, um, uh, pro uh, progressed or regressed as far in Latin America. Now, partly I think that is because uh, much of Latin America, the intellectuals in Latin America are anti-American. And so they're more likely not to establish social connections with American academics and to be a little more reluctant to adopt theories that come out of America. But it is making its way into Latin America, but it's uh, much more slow, and uh, 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 and it's 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 very much less significant in the parts of Eastern Europe that I have spent some time. So, in my experience, the international dimension is primarily uh, that these uh, views have colonized much of the English-speaking academic and intellectual world, and then the uh, the activist centers that come out of that. Now, in your question, though, you made an interesting distinction between, say, uh, you know, within, say, uh, Black people, right? Those who are you know, homegrown Americans or homegrown Americans or homegrown British versus those who are recent immigrants. And there, I don't have good data on uh, on the relative rates of adoption of critical theory in uh, in those two groups. Stephen, I, I would like to just try to get Animal Farm in here real quick since we gave a follow up question. Animal Farm, go ahead quickly. Hi, thanks so much for the the um, speaking, um, uh, Dr. Hicks. Um, my question is really what to do. Um, as an engineer or scientist, um, it seems like uh, this kind of subjective nihilism of postmodern stuff would never hit, you know, or, or shouldn't stop the forward progress. But I see it um, uh, opposite of that, that it's attacking everything, that it's, it's kind of a, a blob, a short circuit blob of nihilism that's taking over the everything and will stop kind of this uh, clearly objective progress or material progress in the world. So I guess my question is what to do about it? How do you stop an argument that can't be argued? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's a good question. Uh, my, 
my my go-to answer always is that you know bad philosophy got us into the mess so only good philosophy will really get us out of it now i think one of the things though that we live in a broadly liberal tolerant society and so we are willing to give almost any argument and any movement the benefit of the doubt and let it have its day in court so to speak and a lot of that is what we're doing right now with postmodernism and critical theory and its woke offshoots and, and so forth. So I would say uh, people are getting up to speed on what's going on and developing counter arguments and counter institutional responses at a pretty fast rate right now. So what I would say is, uh, you know, don't give up hope. Just get yourself up to speed on what the arguments are, what the issues are. Be a decent human being. Be a rational human being in your own area. Uh, you know, just be a, be a good example of how to be. You know, just just a, a normal, decent human being, which, of course, would include not being a racist. Uh, and I think you will find you have lots of uh, explicit allies and lots of uh, kind of tacit allies as well. And uh, the counter movements will develop. And uh, I think we should be able to push these guys back out. Thank great. You. Yeah, great note to end it on. Uh, thank you so much. This was a great topic. We could have gone uh, much longer, but uh, follow the Atlas Society on Twitter X if you want to uh, get notifications of our future spaces. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks right, again. Thanks, everyone.